So, uh, Alan, have you ever had durian before? Uh, no durian, no. No durian. You're familiar with it, though? It's the uh, incredibly smelly fruit from Asia? Yes, I'm, I know of what you speak. <laughs> so, uh, last year, my wife and I, when the kid were in Vancouver, and we were in a market, and we smelled durian and we said okay if we're ever near it we're gonna try it and so we bought it and it reeked we put it in the fridge for like two days and the fridge reeked it just smells like wet garbage i can see how primitive man decided to crack that open (laughs) exactly what it smells like i cannot give a better description so we went to this park that was nearby and we're like okay we're gonna we're gonna open it up in the park it's a nice day and we try it. It's it's actually does taste pretty good. It's sweet and custardy inside. Um, then we're like, okay, what are we going to do with this? There were no trash cans or anything. And I'm like, I can't leave this sitting here under a tree or something. I I feel bad. Okay. So there was a bike there was a bike path nearby and it was right on the water. So everyone's walking and everything there. And I see a trash can. And my wife's like, I'm not going with you smelling like that. And I'm like, all right, no problem. We triple bagged it. I ran out like I was holding a bomb, like Batman holding the uh, the bomb back in the old 60s TV show. And threw it in the trash can and then ran away as fast as I could. I like how you're describing it like it's that American Gladiators game. They're blocking you from the (laughs) bowl and you got to put that dodgeball in. You got to get past ice. Oh, I had to get back past laser, ice, uh, commando. I don't know who else there was, but I I dunked that thing and then I ran. And uh, I like to think for the rest of the day, people were like, what the hell is that? So if you're out there and you're picking up durian and you're like, oh, this is going to be fun. Don't don't do it. Just just don't. Good advice. It's time. Time. For a thrilling story of romance, adventure, mystery, anything with an expired copyright, it's time for another Interrupted Tale. Hello, and welcome to the show that usually ends, another episode of Interrupted Tales the podcast where my friend and I take turns reading stories to you, the listener, while the other person constantly interrupts. As always, I am Rob, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host and compatriot, Alan. Alan, how are things going? Uh, Great. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be here, Rob. (laughs) I appreciate it. Uh, We're going to spend the first 15 minutes talking about your new book, and then the next uh, about politics. Uh, You ready? Great. My book is about (laughs) politics. (laughs) Well, actually, this week, uh, we have a stirring tale of romance all the way from the Isle of Man. It's uh, from 1905, from a book called 52 Stories for Girls. Should have been from the Isle of Women, then. (laughs) Well, it's also edited by Alfred H. Miles. So uh, I I kind of doubt that this was uh, by the girls for the girls. Um, it's a little tale called Twixt Life and Death, a Manx story. Bug Um, <laughs> I, I learned that Manx is not just a cat. It's a term for people from the Isle of Man. Right. 
and it's by a guy, somebody named Klukas Joran, which is not spelled Joran, but I did the research. Great. Wow. <laughs> Classing up the podcast. <laughs> so uh, I think it's time now for everyone to curl up in your favorite chair and grab a drink while we read you this week's tale. Deborah Shimon was neither tall nor fair, and yet nature had been kind to her in many ways. Yeah, you know, nature would take her out for ice cream and buy her separate presents for her birthday, even though it was the day after Christmas. That's <laughs> very good of nature. She had wonderful eyes, large, dark, and full of mute eloquence. Is that how eloquence works? The best kind of eloquence. Understated, muted, just just kind of there. Hold on, sorry. I'd like to put out mute is a is a little bit degree farther than muted. And if her mouth was too large, her nose too irregular, and her cheeks too much tanned by rude health and by exposure to the sun, as the village gossip said I, Henry Kinnish, poetic dreamer and amateur sculptor sculptor thought she had a symmetry of form and a grace of movement which wrought her whole being into harmony and made her a perfect example of beauty with a plain face. Uh, but I feel like we're getting off track, so back to me, Henry Kinnish. <laughs> Poetic dreamer, amateur sculptor, man about town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and everyone knew that Andrew, the young village blacksmith and rural postman, Loved her with all the might of his big, brawny soul. Uh, um, blacksmith and rural postman? Uh, okay, yes, I'll take a book of Elvis stamps and, let's see, three horse reshoings. <laughs> These people have a lot of jobs. Yeah. <laughs> There's not much to do. These two ideas of Deborah's beauty and Andrew's love for her, were revealed to me one day with, when, with Deborah's master, his lumbering sons and comely daughters, and my chum Fred Harcourt, an artist from across the water. From a rival summer camp? <laughs> we were cutting some early grass in May, just before the full bloom of the gorse had begun to fade from the hillsides, and from the tops of the hedges, where it had made for borders of gold for the green of the fields all the spring. A soft west wind, which blew in from the sea, made waves along the uncut grass to windward of the mowers, and played around the skirts of Deborah, making them flutter about her, while the exertion of the haymaking occasionally let loose her long, strong black hair. Oh, haymaking. Uh, was she, was she a featherweight? I mean, I know it's not polite to ask a lady her weight class, but uh, welterweight? Bantamweight? Cruiserweight? <laughs> I like where this is going. A lot of men do. Mm. But the face of Deborah was sad, 
for the village policeman had laid a charge against her before his chief to make her account for her possession of a large number of seagulls' eggs. Uh, <laughs> no, not seagulls. That's a gateway egg, Rob. <laughs> to take... What's next? Goose eggs? Oh, oh. gosh. To take which the law of the island had made a punishable offense by an act of Tinwald passed to protect the seafowl from extinction. Uh, to better preserve the native fauna, including all varieties of flying rats, especially ones that shit all over everything. <laughs> I, it's the reason why Save the Seagulls is not a popular charity in this country. The eggs, all fresh and newly taken from the nests, had been found on Deborah's dressing table. How do they know? Uh, yeah, Chief, I cracked them all open. Every single one as fresh and tasty as the day they were laid. <laughs> I'm just doing it for the investigation, Chief. But Deborah indignantly denied all knowledge of the means by which they had got there. There was a mystery about it to every one for fresh clutches were seen there every morning, and the innocent Deborah made no attempt to conceal them. Where, then, could they come from, but from some nests of the colony of seagulls which lived in the hoffs that dropped down into the sea from Raby Hills? I mean, I'm not saying the Brentwood police, but <laughs> draw your own conclusions. <laughs> Those body cams are going to show something. But no woman, young or old, could climb the crags where the gulls had their nests. It was a feat of daring, only performed by reckless boys and young men who were reared on the literal. And littoral, sorry. Wait, no. I thought it was literal. Hold on, I think, I think we might have to get that pronunciation correct, Rob. I... I Is the littoral <clears throat> on the reared? <laughs> reared on the littoral. I know her name. Her name rhymed with littoral. Okay. But I can't quite think of what it was. So why don't we continue? And who were strong and spirited Craigsmen by inheritance and by familiarity with the dangerous sport of egg collecting among the giddy heights of precipices on which if they took but one false step, they might be hurled to certain destruction below. For it would be like a woman climbing Mount Everest, which I, Henry Kinnish, knows could never happen unless I Google it in 418. <laughs> <laughs> Women don't read anyways. What's that? 52 stories for girls? Sure, I've got one. <laughs> <laughs> when the mowers had made all but the last swath and there were only a few more rucks of the early hay to be made in the field cubbin the rural constable came in from the high road with andrew the smith the hot and sweated mowers did not stop the swing of their scythes but they did take off their shirts and drink diet cokes <laughs> ooh la la but they talked loudly amongst themselves in imprecations against the new law which made it a criminal offense 
for a lad to take a few gulls' eggs, which they, and their fathers before them, had gone sporting after in the good old times when men did what they thought right. Yeah, real manly Irish traditions, like drinking your first whiskey and hurling and playing the sport of hurling. <laughs> I got that. The bronzed face of Deborah Shimon paled. Her lips set into a resolve of courage when she saw Andrew in the hands of the police. And I learned for the first time that Andrew was looked upon as the robber and Deborah as the receiver of the stolen eggs. An egg fence, if you will, a person with various contacts in the egg underground who buys stolen eggs for a vastly discounted price and then cuts up and refacets the eggs, possibly into a salad, <laughs> if they have mayo on hand. <laughs> egg fence. Yeah. I saw more than this. I saw, by one look, that the heart of Deborah and the heart of the tall, lithe lad who now stood before me were as one heart in love and in determination to stand by each other in the coming trial. The big hands of the young smith were thrust into his pockets, and a smile played over his honest face. But Deborah looked at the constable with a hard, defiant look, and then bent over her work again, as if waiting to hear him say something dreadful. The pacing on season seven of Game of Thrones invalidates any sense of realistic plotting. Oh, you monster. What? Can they just teleport across Westeros? Come oh, on. How could you say that? <laughs> oh. Which she resolved to throw back into his face, though her hand trembled as she held the fork, which moved now faster and stronger than before. Mm, yeah, I was going to make some kind of pitch pun, but I, I think Rebel Wilson has some sort of trademark on them. <laughs> Come on, pitches. But Cubbon was a man of the gospel of peace, though he was an officer of the law. Priest Cop, tonight, after NCIS Parsippany on CBS, CBS, America's most watched network. <laughs> By the way, CBS, uh, we're looking for sponsors, so uh, all access. Show us the money. Come on. That's right. Priest Cop could be a streaming show. <laughs> could be, sure. Get seven people to watch something. It'll be a show now. And he only looked sadly on the face of Deborah as he asked her whether it would not be better for her to say where she got her supply of eggs from than allow him to get a summons against Andrew. Yes, yes, they came from my cousin, who is a seagull. Well, he was in flock of seagulls. <laughs> but then he ran. He ran so far away. Well, that's where he got the eggs. <laughs> I've told you before that Andrew never gave me the eggs, cried the girl, her face flushed with the crimson setting of the sun, and I don't know where they came from. I mean, probably a cloaca <laughs> of some kind, but I can't testify to that. <laughs> probably. It's cloaca. <laughs> I can't say anything different, and I wish you would not trouble me, Mr. Cubbin. Fred and I called Cubbin, the constable, to one side, and asked him to allow us a day or two to solve the mystery of the eggs. 
<laughs> yeah, these Sue Grafton, the poet and the painter mysteries are just flying off the shelves. They're just so, so relatable. S is for seagull eggs. <laughs> A little arrangement, which may seem strange to dwellers in towns, but which was quite practicable at this time in this far-off place, and which he soon agreed to allow. I had been out shooting corn crakes that day. Uh, now, Rob, would you say that Corn and Crakes is one of Margaret Atwood's most accessible <laughs> novels? Well, you, you really have to read the whole trilogy. That's the problem. Oh, okay. <laughs> what are the names of the other books in that trilogy, Rob? Uh, <laughs> well, it's called the Mad Adam Trilogy. Uh, uh -huh. And there's the... I don't remember the waterless flood. I think it's one of them. Um, something like that. that sounds uneventful. <laughs> and Fred Harcourt had come with me for a day in the meadows as his brush and palette had wearied him of late. Oh, oh this alizarin crimson is just killing my back. I gotta lay down. <laughs> and he longed to stretch his limbs and to see my spaniels work in the weedy hedges and in the meadows where the grass had stood the test of the dry spring. We had taken off our coats to help our neighbor with his sunburnt grass, and our guns were laid across them. That seems like an interesting and very specific detail. <laughs> the spaniels had fallen asleep, using the coats as beds. Uh, you know, I think they might need to amend the four rules of gun safety to be... Don't let your dog sleep on your guns. <laughs> just, you know when they dream and their legs start moving? That's just a uh, bad idea. I do know that. While conversing with Cubbin, we had walked quietly to get our coats, and I saw that one of the sleeping dogs was still hunting in his dreams. Oh, how prophetic of you, Rob. <laughs> there was nothing uncommon about this, for dogs will hunt in their sleep. And they'll do even crazier things on Ambien, let me tell you. <laughs> but some inner voice said to me that Deborah Shimon, being a highly strung, nervous girl, might hunt in her sleep also, and that such things as somnambulists walking the roofs of high houses had been heard of. And I remembered a lad in my own boyhood's days who was awakened early one morning by the riverside with his rod in his hand and his uh, basket slung over his nightshirt. You know, the less said about that boy, the better. <laughs> but I did not communicate my theory of the solution of the mystery of the eggs to Cub and the Constable. Uh, because I had just made it up out of thin air. <laughs> when the policeman left the field, I entered into a kindly talk with Deborah Shimon. And was not long in learning what the girl herself had probably never thought of. That on the public reading of the Act for the Protection of Seafowl, on the Tinwald Day of the previous year, she had been impressed by the thought that Andrew would now be forbidden to employ his agility and his courage in a form of sport she had often tried to dissuade him from. This is like the Isle of Man's Kennedy assassination. <laughs> You know, I'll always remember where I was on that Tinwall day when they read some kind of proclamation about macaws, or... I don't know, actually, I might be thinking of the movie Rio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew before this that she had recently lost her mother, 
and had suffered a bereavement through a favorite brother being lost at sea one stormy night at the back-end herring-fishing off of Houth Head. Mm, that's when I began to suspect the gull eggs were just a red herring to keep us off the scent of two unsolved murders. Did I mention I'm an unqualified poet? <laughs> this is looking rather suspicious for Deborah. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Deborah, I said to Fred. She's all nerves, and the hand of life's troubles is holding her. Surely she must be innocent of encouraging her lover and risking his life. The only precious life left to her now. Um, she's still alive. I mean, she's still got herself. I don't want to get too existential in a book about stories for girls, but <laughs> maybe they have some self-worth? Oh, that's that's crazy talk, Alan. Crazy talk. Henry Kinnish knows it is. <laughs> and the jolly Andrew, said Fred, certainly looked the most amusing picture of innocence as Cubbin trotted him along the grass. But your theory of the somnambulant business is a bit fanciful all the same. <laughs> With that, uh, we, we conclude part one. All right. Alan, I've been thinking about asking our listeners, popping them the big question. Okay. It's, it's not an easy one. I think now is the time for us to both get on our knees and look deep, deep into our listeners' ears and, what? and ask them sincerely and with conviction, will you rate and review us on iTunes? Okay, we're on our knees. Where are their ears? <laughs> They're going to have to bend down, too. Everyone, get on your knees. Okay, wait a minute. I don't think we want to ask our <laughs> listeners to do that. You know what I think we do want to ask them to do? What? Is to please go to iTunes, rate and review the podcast. If you like what we do, help us out. It's free for you. It's a great thing for us. Rob, can you say anything else without making inappropriate requests from our audience? You can rate and review us on any of the other services too. Google Play, they're awesome. Whether you do it on your knees or not, I leave it up to you. That's your business. Thank you, folks. We appreciate it. Part two. At 10 o'clock that night, Fred Harcourt and I bivouacked within sight of the only door of the house where Deborah Shimon worked as a domestic help in the family of her uncle. Oh, you know, the pay's terrible, but on the plus side, I get to see the family that treats me like hired labor on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, she, how many jobs does she have? She mows grass and a hay. Boxes. She, she does domestic help. She's a welterweight. I, uh, she steals eggs. She steals eggs. She's got a lot going on. Well, she's a busy young lady. The night was not dark. It seldom is dark in these northern islands so late in May. But there was a light of the moon at its first quarter, and a glint of some stars shone down upon us as we hearkened to the stillness of the air and to a frequent movement of a tired horse in the stable. Ah, uh, Zumba. <laughs> what, you think he's, a, he's got a spin class? I don't know how that would work, Rob. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I could see it. He's got hooves. And could happen. Our bivouac was a clump of tramon trees, elders, 
at the corner of the orchard which adjoined the farm buildings. Between us and the dwelling house, there was a disused pigsty. Yeah, the pigs bought their own houses. No more rent. It's a good investment. Well, not the straw one. That's got some structural issues. That brick one, though. I could, uh, I could see a good return on that if they put in a half bath on the first floor. You gotta make the right uh, upgrades. Only the ones that are worth it when you go to resell. Do not go for the marble countertops everywhere. Just a bad move. At about a quarter to eleven o'clock, a man with a red setter dog at his heels and a fouling piece on his arm came sneaking by and crept into the sty. Then there was another long spell of silence, not broken, but rather intensified by the words which I whispered to Fred Harcourt. Mm. It takes a poet to flower up whispering by calling it intensified silence. <laughs> What was that torture that they called? Uh, enhanced interrogation. That's, uh, I think the same guy wrote that. Brutal. <laughs> that the fellow who crept into the sty was Kit Kermode, and that he could be after no good. At midnight, a cock crew at the far end of the village, and a dog barked. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I think you missed a verb in the first part of that sentence. What did... Logan Paul's family do? You, you want to read that again? At midnight, a cock crew? Uh-huh. See, I just, just missing a verb. <laughs> Cocks be crewing. Then there was silence again, save that every now and again, a sedge warbler, far away by the stream near Shenvarla, sang a faintly audible song. Our position on the slope of the foothill at Gordon House was between the village and the hills which girt the seacoast. This made my theory of the sleepwalking to the cliffs more plausible. Though not less stupid. <laughs> but while we lay low in the clump of tramon trees, the appearance of Kit Kermode, with his cat-like walk, and his eyes that could wink slander faster than any old woman's tongue could wag it, gave me a theory, or at least a speculation, in another direction. I loved Wink Slander on Tic Tac Doe. <laughs> it's more of a card sharks man myself, but uh, he was all right. In soft whispers to Fred Harcourt, who was new to the village, I told him how the rascal Kermode hated Andrew the blacksmith. He hates him, I said. <laughs> Fantastic narration. <laughs> you know, he keeps his word that Henry Kinnish. <laughs> I do verily believe, for his good, honest face, his manly, outspoken tongue, his courage and his power of arm. His profoundness of genitalia. <laughs> wow, he really knows about this guy. Well, he knows about his power of arm. <laughs> but most of all, he hates him since Andrew, years ago as an innocent and unthinking lad, ran after him in a village street and handed him a reminder of some money which he owed his master. Uh, 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 sir, uh, uh, you, you accidentally signed the customer copy. <laughs> Bastard! <laughs> but what can that have to do with Deborah Shimon's gull eggs? Asked Fred, whose mind never seemed to see anything but pictures of divers, colors, 
and inspiring outlines in the happy dreamland he lived in. Umi City? Conscious of the world's cruelty and hate and love of evil. I had just finished telling him that a man like Kermode might bribe a boy to get him gull's eggs and sneak up to Deborah's window and quietly reach in and place the eggs on her dressing table <laughs> as a means of getting Deborah and Andrew into trouble. Now, he, now he's got accomplices? This is turning into a Rico case. <laughs> it's the perfect crime, Alan. Oh my god, they're going to launder <laughs> the gull eggs through offshore accounts. I had just finished giving this outline of the thought in my mind, I say, when the door of the farmhouse opened, and Deborah Shimon, clad only in her nightdress, stepped lightly forth and started up the hillside. The next moment the man, his gun in the hollow of his arm and the red setter dog at his heels, crawled forth from the pigsty, looked round as if to make certain he was not watched. Uh, you know, by the Nighttime Pig Watcher Society. You, you don't have one of those in your neighborhood? Is that... I think uh, it's more of an Isle of Man thing. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> and followed the white figure of the girl as she glided up the zigzag path in the direction of the Hoffs, which formed the wild seacoast. It did not take Fred and me very long to take off our boots and noiselessly follow. Ow. 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 Ooh, squishy. Ow. Ow. Seagull egg. Seagull egg. <laughs> it's not a crime to step on them. You just can't pick them up after. Guided by the figure in white rather than by the man who went before us, for the dim light of the moon and the northern night made his dark dress difficult to see in the shadows of the hedges and trees. Yeah, that's why they're not watching the girl in her nightdress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Mm -hmm. I knew that Deborah would take the usual path to the rocks and bade Fred follow close behind me while I took a shorter route. Mm, yeah, I think you can gather by now that I, Henry Kinnish, Knew a lot of things, and I'm really happy to tell you all about them. <laughs> In ten minutes, we were again under cover when the girl passed close by us. Her long hair knotted roughly into a mass of rolls about her large and well-formed head. <laughs> yeah, phrenologically speaking, she's a hottie. <laughs> just the right bumps in just the right places. Her eyes were open and fixed in a glassy stare straight ahead. She seemed to move along, rather than walk, and had no appearance of either hesitation or haste, and Kermode, with his dog and his gun, stealthily followed in her wake not twenty yards behind. What is up with dogs and guns in this story? Do you get them at the same time here, like they're just giving away puppies free with the purchase of a rifle? <laughs> While we were crossing the field bordering the Gordon Hoffs, keeping under the shadow of a gorse-clad hedge. <laughs> I'm pretty sure gorse-clad hedge is a character from a Mervyn Peak novel. <laughs> gorse-clad hedge arrived one day. Deborah disappeared over the cliff, and the man, watched by Fred and myself, crept up to the edge of the cliffs down which the poor girl had descended. 
Before another minute had elapsed, Kermode had stretched himself out his full length on a crag, which overlooked the precipitous rocks down which Deborah had disappeared. We then secured the cover of a mound, not thirty feet away from him. The dog gave a low whine when he saw the head of his master craned out to watch the movements of the white figure descending the rocks, and then all was quiet as before. Fred's suspense and anxiety for the safety of the girl was apparent in his hard breathing, but my own were inconsiderable, for I knew that if undisturbed by any noise unusual to the night, or any interference by the fellow who now held the future happiness of Andrew the Smith in his hands, she would climb safely up the hoff and make her way home to bed, all unconscious of the awful position she had placed herself in. Everyone knows that rock climbing is 100% safe if you're asleep, Fred. Yeah. Get with it. Stop breathing. All the best free climbers do it. to sleep. Wicked as I knew the man to be, I did not now imagine that he had any other intention in watching around the house than to try to discover Andrew paying a nocturnal visit with some gull's eggs for his sweetheart. This would have been a mean enough act, but it seems a small thing beside the cruel and murderous deed he would have committed, but for the providential presence and prompt action of Fred Harcourt and myself. Because we were going to challenge him to an impromptu slam poetry contest? <laughs> I was going to say that's a standard duel in the Isle of Man. Slam poetry. Sir, I could be your second. I have mastered the flowery language. <laughs> Fred and I lay low. Now, gentlemen, remember, it is only to the first quatrain. No further. <laughs> we don't want any deaths. <laughs> All right. Fred and I lay low, with our chin chins resting on our hands, not daring even to whisper. Okay, but what if we silent whisper, though? Oh, no. I, I mean, never mind. What? I can't hear you. You're whispering. I said, Oh, no. Stop resting your chin on your hand. I can't understand. <laughs> the dog whined a little now and again and we heard the subdued cries of seagulls as they flew off, alarmed in the darkness over the sea. Still, Deborah did not make her appearance on the top of the cliff. It seemed a long time that we lay and watched thus, but it could not have been so long as it seemed. Uh, I don't know. It seems like a pretty long time. I think our <laughs> listeners might also think it's been a pretty long time. No, no, they are riveted. Egg thieves, Alan? Come on. Then Kermode, without raising himself from watching the climbing girl, reached back for the gun which he had placed on the ground by his side. He raised it to the level of his face, resting his left elbow on the ground, and I heard the click of the hammer as he cocked it. Then I saw his thumb and finger go into his waistcoat pocket. Oh no, good lord, he's reaching for a second gun or... What's happening? <laughs> Good God, I said in a loud whisper as I sprang to my feet, for I knew in one awful moment that the villain was feeling for a cap to discharge a shot in the air above the head of Deborah, who would wake up at the shock and fall to the base <laughs> of the crag in her terrible fright. I knew that. <laughs> Henry Kinnish knows how all things play out. 
<laughs> he wouldn't shoot her, no. So intent was Kermode in his fell design of frightening the girl to her destruction that he did not hear me or notice the growl of his dog or feel the vibration of our tread as we both bore down upon him. Well, it's just two dudes. It's not a herd of water buffalo. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you see the lake water starting to tremble. <laughs> well, I actually, I did research not on Henry Kinnish, but the actual author of the book. And and I learned two things. He, he weighed 365 pounds. Well, so a cruiserweight then. <laughs> and he was an excellent swimmer. Oh. So Henry Kinnish might have come after him and might have been a little pounding. That's all I'm saying. Okay. We should have been too late if it had not been for the lifelong habit of the wretch to secure himself from danger or suspicion. With his finger on the trigger, all ready to pull, he paused one moment to raise himself and look about. That moment saved the life of Deborah Shimon, for the would-be murderer was the next instant under the knee of Fred Harcourt and his throat in his grip while my hand was over the nipples of the gun. <laughs> okay. Hey, hey, watch it. Those are very sensitive, and I don't want anything to go off. How many nipples does a gun have? That's a question we get a lot here at Snopes, Rob. <laughs> this is like a dog situation. Is <laughs> While we were all on the ground together and the setter dog got had a hold of Harcourt's leg, the tall form of Cubbin the policeman bent over us. And then the rest of the town showed up. Hey, we were having a night parade <laughs> over the hill and heard a scuffle. Hey, what's going on? I had lowered the hammers of the gun and thrown it to one side to grasp the dog, for Harcourt would not let go his hold of Kermode's throat lest he should shout and wake the girl. Gag, Kermode, I said to Cubbin, as I hit the dog just above the snout with a stone, killing him by one blow. What the fuck? Dude, no. What? There's one thing you never do. You don't kill the dog in the oh story my. about seagull egg theft. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. 52 stories for girls, ladies and gentlemen. Then Deborah Shimon, holding something in a fold of her nightdress with one hand and climbing with the other, came up over the edge of the cliff a few yards away from us. She looked very beautiful as she stepped up on the sloping sward above the hof, with the pale moonlight just lighting her airy dress and her face all sad and careworn. Because you just killed a dog! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Still, wow. Leaving Kermode to the care of the constable, Fred and I noiselessly followed the girl home and saw her step over the obstacles in her path as by instinct turning her face neither to the right nor left. We decided to awaken her before she reached the door of the farmhouse, so that, according to the popular notion, she might never again become somnambulant. Uh, uh, yeah, I hear if you kill the head somnambulists, all the other somnambulists wake up and are magically cured. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, you also have to bury the head somnambulists... <laughs> Back in Romania. And you have to stuff the head with garlic. It's it's a whole thing. Yeah. With this view, I stepped before her as she approached the door, 
but was astonished to find that she paused, as if my presence blocked the way, before she yet saw me or touched me. Almost as if my injudicious use of Axe body spray created a physical barrier to women. <laughs> but there was no misunderstanding the blank stare in her wonderful eyes. I gently put out my hand and took hers, as she put it out before her to feel the influence of a presence she could not see. She did not scream or faint. She awoke with a start and let the eggs fall on the ground. Well, I've seen enough guilty. <laughs> That's she it. She caught her in the act. And in the end, she goes to prison for 20 years. At first, she could not understand where she was and just thought she was dreaming. But by degrees, it came to her that she was standing before me in the pale moonlight when she thought she ought to be in bed. Then I softly told her where she had been in her sleep keeping back all knowledge of Kermode's attempted revenge on Andrew and how he had decided to awake her. Then, with a little pleasant laugh, we both told her that the mystery of the seagull's eggs was solved and that neither Andrew nor she would be troubled again. Speaking in my role as an amateur detective lawyer, <laughs> which I do in between sculpting and poeting and writing about how I sculpt and poet, and between his side gig as a dog killer. Let's never forget. Hey, that, that was rough. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> she fell to sobbing a little, and for the first time seemed to shiver with the cold. Then she lifted the latch and we bade her good night. Nothing was done to Kermode, for the fellow swore he had no intention of discharging the gun. No, I just like to clean my guns at night under the moonlight, and you can't prove that I don't like to clean my guns at night under the moonlight. <laughs> and we could not prove he had, though the case was clear enough in our eyes, and the deed would have been done had we not, in God's providence, been there to prevent it. Cubbon, the constable, it transpired afterwards, had overheard me giving my theory of the sleepwalking to Fred in the hayfield, and he, too, had been hiding at the farm, and had watched and followed us all. Just because it looked like fun. It's a sleepy town, you know? Yeah. So, there was a wonderful story for him to tell of how Deborah had made good her defense against the charge he had laid against Andrew and her. And the beautiful Deborah, with a plain face, became the bride of the jolly Andrew, who was neither an artist nor an amateur sculptor, but only a village blacksmith who had an eye for beauty, a form, and character. And a really beefcakey body, which probably counts for a lot, I'm <laughs> just saying. The end. <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, that one took some turns. It sure was a great story about protecting animals for <laughs> several pages there. Yeah, there's a good long time where it felt like uh, this was really about saving animals. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I got a lot to unpack here. Um, but uh, while, I, while I think about this a little bit, Alan, what, what did you see as the moral of this particular story? It's very plain to me, Rob, and I think I can 
sum it up in a single sentence. The moral of the story is that seagull eggs are obviously very bad for you. You should probably use a substitute like gull beaters. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, that's what they were going to do to the gulls if they hadn't gotten that dog. Yeah, that's how it. That's how it goes on the Isle of Man. That's, that's how they. Please don't write into us from the Isle of Man. We we love our viewers in the Isle of Man. I'm going to say that the moral of the story is that uh, if uh, you are an amateur sculptor on the Isle of Man, you're going to think really goddamn highly of yourself. And uh, you're going to pretty much think you're Superman. And and this story makes absolutely no sense. Why was she sleepwalking? Why was she stealing Mm -hmm. eggs? She she was was sleep climbing. No, I think if you understand that they're all precogs, Rob, oh. then it it all comes together. No, okay. Now it all makes sense. She's asleep. Yeah. She's grabbing the eggs. The eggs go down that weird little stupid spinny thing right mm-hmm. to Tom Cruise, who then shakes his hands around and uh, and and then points at Kermode because he's the only bad guy on this town. So yeah, okay. I don't really know, but I like iPads. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's about going to wrap it up for this week's episode, though. So I'd like to invite everybody to tune in next time for another exciting Interrupted. Hey, girls like stories where the heroine is asleep the whole time and then for no reason someone kills a dog, right? (laughs) Tail!